Luke 5, verse 27. As we make our way through this world, it is obvious that not everyone wants to be around sinners. Not everyone wants to be around those that society deems as being unclean or uncouth or unseemly. Sometimes this aversion is based upon a person's past and their associations with their own previous sin and they they don't want those associations, they don't want those temptations to come back and so they are not around those kind of people. Other times it's because they believe that the behaviors engaged in by a certain group of sinners or, or unseemly people will in fact be a danger to them or to their family. Still yet, and probably most often, people avoid sinners because they think they are better than them. They don't want to be around those kind of people. That somehow the sinner is not worth their time. A man by the name of William Booth found this out back in 1846. In an effort to win the lost, he went to those parts of the city where few Christians went and dealt with people that few Christians wanted to be concerned with, the poor and the needy. One Sunday he brought them to the church and he brought them down to the very front to the best seats that they might hear clearly about Jesus who came for sinners to save their souls. But on the way down and during the service he received glares of disdain from the pulpit throughout the pews. After all, those kinds of people were supposed to come in a different door. They were supposed to sit in a different place, behind a screen where the members of the congregation and the pastor could not even see them or be aware of their presence. It was not long after this incident that Booth was actually kicked out of the Methodist church he was attending. It's no surprise that he began his own church, today known as the Salvation Army. In the previous section that we looked at last week, Luke showed us what kind of Savior Jesus came to be and still is. A Savior for sinners who meets their deepest spiritual need and who is willing to save. Luke continues this theme as we see Jesus calling a disciple to himself, asking one to follow him in all things. And from these verses, we see not only how Jesus called a sinner to himself in his day, but how he continues to care for those that society rejects. How he cares for sinners that many simply do not have time for. How he saves even sinners like us. So I encourage you to follow along as we look at Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 27. God's word says, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of God. Hear it and believe. From these verses, we see four things about Jesus and his coming into this world for sinners. First of all, we see this. Jesus pursues sinners. Jesus pursues 
sinners. In quite straightforward and simple terms, Luke begins by telling us that Jesus went out from the place where he had been and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. Who was this man Levi? Well, for many, Luke has told us everything that we need to know about him. He is a tax collector. Therefore, he is despised. The IRS has been in the news a lot lately. But even apart from what has come out about their activities in the last few years, there is a general dislike for the IRS in our country. I don't envy them in their job. Someone said that a child one time was choking on a nickel and the, and the, the mom was incredibly flustered and fearful for his life and a man came running out of the crowd, grabbed the kid, turned him upside down, began shaking him until the nickel popped out. And she said, I'm so thankful a doctor came. And he said, no, ma'am, I'm not a doctor. I'm with the IRS. You think about how much we typically dislike them and even how furious some people are because of the recent scandal. That doesn't come close to what's going on in this passage and in this culture. You see, Levi was a Jewish tax collector who worked for the Roman Empire. The Romans appointed petty kings in their provinces to rule over them and to uh, collect taxes and to keep the peace. But those kings didn't want to get their hands dirty. They did not want to be directly associated with a taxation that took place under the Roman Empire. So they would take bids for others who would be about the business of collecting taxes. And the people would offer a bid and they'll say, I will collect this much for you. And the highest bidder would win the contract. But that amount of money, that amount of taxes was not public knowledge. So the man collecting the taxes could then go on to collect more than what he had promised to give to the Romans. In fact, as much just about as he wanted, keeping the profit for himself. Now, people understood this was the man's job. This is how he got paid. Nevertheless, you can imagine that the system was open and filled with corruption. And most tax collectors were filthy rich. All of this was compounded negatively in Levi's case because he was a Jew. So his fellow countrymen would have saw him as a traitor because he was working with the enemy, the Roman oppressors. Remember, is the nation of Israel was not a willing participant in the Roman Empire. More than that, Levi would have been considered by many to be a thief because he took more than he deserved gouging the people of their resources. Finally, some would have even seen Levi as being unclean because of how much interaction he had with and sympathy for the Gentile people. Some rabbis went so far as to declare that anyone or anything that was found inside the house of a tax collector was to be considered impure. So you're, you're dying of thirst from a long journey. You come, you're desperate for water, and the tax collector comes out of his house with a cup offering it to you. You would not take it to save your life. That's come from the tax collector's house. That is unclean. It is impure. I don't want to have anything to do with it, let alone him. In other words, in the eyes of his countrymen, Levi was the lowest of the low. A sinner, if there ever was one in the eyes of the Jews. Yet what does Jesus do? Luke says, he saw the tax collector sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Notice, Jesus goes in pursuit of, 
of this man, Levi. Jesus approaches him. Jesus initiates the relationship with this sinner. And Jesus does this with every sinner that he encounters. In fact, we see this with God working in all of the people he has dealt with throughout all the Bible. The Bible calls this the doctrine of election. And we see it played out from Genesis to Revelation. We see it in the garden with Adam and Eve. They are hiding in sin, fleeing from God. And what does God do? He pursues them. He seeks them out. When Abraham is living in idolatry in the land of Ur, God reveals himself to him. He seeks the sinner out to bless him and to save him and to make him a blessing of others. When the people of Israel, the the, the promised people from Abraham, no longer know who God is and are languishing in Egypt, calling out to anyone that they might be rescued, God goes in pursuit of Israel that he might redeem his people out of Egypt. We see it on and on and on in the life of everyone who has ever been saved. Before they are thinking about God, before they desire to know Him, before they even see their need of being forgiven by God, God is pursuing them. God is seeking after them. God is pursuing us today. He sees our sin. He sees our corruption. He sees the filthiness of our lives and our hearts which love sin so much and yet He still comes after us. He still decides to set His affection upon us to show us mercy and come in pursuit that we might know Him and be loved by Him. And in pursuing sinners, Jesus also calls sinners. Jesus calls sinners. Remember, In the Gospels, what we're getting is an overview of events. We're we're not getting the exhaustive story, right? Jesus lives around 33 years, and we only have the equivalent of a handful of months of actual time in his life. So the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, even when you put them together, you do not have a full biography of Jesus. In every account, you do not have every detail. It's something like the Sermon on the Mount. We say the greatest sermon ever preached. We've not actually heard that sermon. We've got the sermon notes. We've got the outline. It says Jesus would preach all day that kind of sermon. So even here, well, we, we come to a passage like this, and we may be tempted to think that Jesus just walks up to Levi and says, follow me, and Levi says, yes, Jesus, and gets up and he walks away. Well, that, that, that's not really the situation here. Uh, Levi has surely known something of Jesus before this. Perhaps he's been around when he's healed others. Perhaps he was present when Jesus taught in public. But Jesus is not some kind of mystic here. He's not a Creston, a Creskin, or a or a Svengali. He's not doing some kind of Jedi mind trick. This is the Savior you're looking for. Follow me. And Matthew, uh, Levi just says, "Yes, I'll do it," and he gets up. And that's not what's going on here. There's some kind of understanding. It's not a it's not a perfect understanding. Levi doesn't know everything about Jesus. He doesn't understand everything there is to understand, but he has enough knowledge that when Jesus says to him, follow me, Levi obeys in faith. He answers the call. In fact, Luke says that leaving everything, he rose and he followed him. Now, what, now what, is, what is Jesus calling him to? Again, I don't think Jesus is walking up and said, follow me. I think they probably had a conversation that climaxed in this call. Levi, follow me. And, and, and so what kind, of things, what, what kind of things is Jesus calling him to do in following him? First of all, I think he means for Levi to follow in obedience. We see throughout 
the Gospel of Luke, through all the Gospels, to be a disciple of Jesus means listening to his teaching. It means learning how to think about God. It means following the example that Jesus gives for how we are to live our life differently in a God-centered way. It's more than just saying, oh, this will be fun for a while. This will be great. It'll be like itinerant preaching. It'll be like this extended camping trip. It'll be like a, a really long men's retreat. No, it, it, it's much more than that. And it still is. Following Jesus is about his lordship over your life. It's about taking off your little tarnished taped together crown and laying it aside and looking to the crown sitting on Jesus' head and saying, that's the one I want to follow. That's the king that I want to establish over my life. It's about following him in obedience. But it's also a call to sacrifice. It's also a call to sacrifice. Tax collectors weren't the kind of people who needed to worry about having their needs met. They they didn't worry about living paycheck to paycheck. They didn't have to go to the store and buy store brand or off brand or skimp on meals to meet a budget. They were well off. They they were the, the wealthy people in their communities. And notice that Levi leaves that stand and he leaves that life behind him. Leaving everything, he rose and followed him. This was not like the other disciples who had previously left the fishing business. You know, the nets were still there. The boats were still there. In fact, throughout the Gospels, we see at times they have to eat. There's no way else to find food. They get those boats. They go out and fish. When, when they think Jesus has died and he's not coming back and they're, they're, they're living in the bewilderment between the resurrection uh, and the crucifixion, what do they do? They go back to their business of fishing. Levi doesn't have that option. He, he's breaking contract with the Roman Empire. They're not taking him back after a few months sabbatical. They're not taking him back after having been gone for a few years about ditching them. There's no going back. He is sacrificing everything here. And and that principle of sacrifice is not specific just to Levi. At least twice in the Gospels, the disciples look at Jesus after some teaching. They say, see, we have left everything and followed you. Later, Jesus himself would say things like, you've got to leave behind your mother and your brother, and you've got to follow me. If you really love me, if you're going to come after me, if you're going to be worthy of me, of my disciples, then nothing comes between me and you. There's not some other priority. There's not some other person. There's not some other thing that you love more than me. If so, you're not fit to be my disciples. The constant chorus of the gospel song is, leave everything else behind and follow me. And that's still true of Jesus' call to sinners. He calls us to follow him in obedience and in sacrifice. It's a call to look at what we have, to look at what's in our life and say, Jesus is better than this. Even when the road is rough and the future, the immediate future is uncertain, Jesus is still better than this. Jesus calls us to follow him in faith. And that call is a radical call to obedience and sacrifice, to leave everything behind. But... But here's the encouraging thing. It also comes with a radical grace that enables us to hear and obey the call. I think it was Augustine who said that God does not require anything of us which he himself does not provide. You think about that and and it, it will blow your mind. 
And what Jesus is saying here, what we see demonstrated throughout the Gospels and taught in the epistles, is that when God, when, when God says, follow my son, when Jesus looks at you and says, follow me, he knows that left to yourself, you are incapable of that. But he gives you grace to obey. He gives you the grace that you need to say yes and to continue in this life of living for Jesus. He doesn't expect you just to work really hard at following Jesus. He doesn't say, follow me, and yeah, I'm not sure you're going to make it. Maybe you should just stay behind. I can, I can tell. Not going to happen. No, he, he looks at Levi, the one who's considered the worst, the worst, the most sinful of the sinners, and he says, you follow me. How, how am I going to do that? Because I'm going to give you the grace to do that. I, I'm going to enable you and empower you to do that. You know, I, I don't often hold myself up as an example or use illustrations from my life that I say, you, you, should, you should imitate me in this. Number one, because that's dangerous for any pastor. But number two, because I probably get it wrong more often than I get it right. I'm probably a better example than I am a good example. But... The, the, the reality of this principle, that when God says to follow my son, he gives you the grace to do it, is, is something that was driven home very powerfully last year when we were about to take uh, the, at the Africa trip that we took in January. Because for, for a long time, the missionaries are saying, yeah, you can come, but it's not safe. And the State Department is saying, yeah, you better not go there, it's not safe. And, and yet the whole time I'm feeling like Jesus is saying, follow me and go on that trip. And so I'm torn. What, what do I do? I mean, I'm a, I'm a husband. I'm a father. I got family. I'm being told it's not safe. And yet I feel like Jesus is saying, follow me and go on that trip. What am I going to do? So, so I call in the big guns. I call down to my old seminary, my old professors who teach missions and go on mission trips all the time and say, what should I do? And they say, we don't know. What do you think you should do? What do you think God wants you to do? I said, I know what God wants me to do, but I'm not sure I want to do it. It's scary. What if I don't come home? I love my wife. Follow me and go. But who's going to provide for them? Follow me and go. And so eventually, crunch time comes. You, you have to make reservations. You have to buy tickets. You have to start preparing. And so we, we, we talk with the other guys, and I say, look, it, you know what the situation is going to be like. You know that we it's not a suicide mission, but it's kind of 50-50 leaning towards the, the really, really dangerous. There's a chance we won't come back from this. If you say no, no one's going to hold it against you. But I feel like having prayed, having talked with Melinda, I, I need to do this trip. I need to go. Now, left to myself, I'm not that brave. Left to myself, I'm not that godly. But God's grace was an operation in my life. God's grace was the one empowering me to hear clearly the call of Jesus on my life in that moment and to make that hard decision. To have to get into a car and drive to the airport and, and, and say to my wife, you know, I, I, I'm pretty confident I'm coming back, but if I don't, there's some things that I, I need you to hear from me first. That, that is not well up naturally within me. But when God's grace is operating in us, we can do all things. When he calls us to obey, he gives us the grace we need to do it. And here's the thing. Here's, here's the negative part. Here's the bad example. They said, I often forget that in the everyday minutia of life. It is so easy to go through every day with all of these simple decisions, all of these simple temptations, in quotes. 
and forget God still calls me to follow Jesus, to live faithfully, and to trust in His grace to get me through that and succeed. And we forget. And we think, I've got to do this on my own steam, I've got to do this on my own power, and we fail miserably. And yet every moment, every waking moment of our life, Jesus is saying to us still, follow me, and I will give you the grace to do it. Trust me, obey me, live for me, and I will give you the grace to do it. It begins when we're drowning in sin. We're looking hell in the face and he says, follow me. And he gives us the grace to do it. He opens our eyes. We might see the beauty of his cross and believe. And it continues when your boss at work treats you poorly. And Jesus is still saying, follow me and I will give you the grace to do it. When you're alone at night, the computer is on and Jesus says, follow me. And I will give you the grace to do it. When your family is selfish and you're pressed in by their needs, Jesus says, follow me and I will give you the grace to do it. When you feel weighed down by that besetting sin you just can't seem to get rid of, Jesus says, follow me and I will give you the grace to do it. Jesus says, follow me and don't follow anything else. And in the end, I promise you, it's worth the sacrifice. It's worth the obedience because, number three, Jesus heals sinners. Jesus heals sinners. Levi leaves everything to answer Jesus' call and follow him. And such is the joy in his life that from doing so, he hosts a great feast in his house where there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table. Verse 29. Levi is happy. He is joyous. He is ecstatic. Think about what he does there. It's amazing. How can he be so happy? He just left everything. When I'm talking about leaving everything behind, about nothing between you and Jesus and about obedience and sacrifice, some of you look like your dog just died. You're scared to death to lose your stuff. And here is Levi. He has no future as far as he knows financially. And yet he's ecstatic. He's like, let's spend more. Let's get people together. Let's, let's invite Jesus over and have this great party. How can he do that? Why is he doing that? The Pharisees help answer that question. First of all, they, they aren't happy. They aren't joyous. Verse 30, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat with and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now there's a bit of a debate here. Are the Pharisees and the scribes actually at the party or not? Are they simply watching Jesus and see this great party going on and wondering what's going on and they get closer to see what's happening? Notice the sinners that are there and start complaining. Well, I think it's got to be the second one because their whole complaint is you shouldn't eat with those people. Why would they be eating with those people? They wouldn't. They're upset because they wouldn't be caught dead eating with those people. And Jesus is. Now, what's the big deal? In that culture, eating with someone is more than just eating with somebody. It's about more than food. It's not, let's just grab lunch sometime. It's, let's break bread together. Eating a meal is about intimacy and friendship. You don't invite your enemies to sit down and dine with you. Table fellowship was about also fellowship before God. And we see this at different ways in different cultures even today. My friend Mohammed once told me that there was such a cultural divide in their Tomashek people group between the, 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 the kind of uh, true red Tomashek, the, the, the ruling class, and the, the, the black slave class of Tomashek that they had uh, pulled into their people group at some point. There was still such a divide that even after he was saved, even after he was a Christian, even after he knew that these, these fellow black Tomasek 
And him as a red tamajic, they're equal before God. They are one in Christ. He says, the first time I put my hand into the bowl and ate out of the same bowl with them. Afterward, I had to excuse myself, go behind the house and physically get sick. I vomited. Because in my mind, in my culture, that was an offensive, disgusting thing to do. That That's getting at the revulsion that the Pharisees are feeling here. They cannot fathom why Jesus would be eating with tax collectors and sinners. But Jesus is clear why he's eating with them. He makes it clear why Levi can have such joy and happiness, even in leaving everything behind. He says, verse 31, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Levi heard Jesus teach about the gospel of the kingdom and he saw his power. He saw his authority in teaching and in healing. And in the midst of these things, Levi was confronted with his own sin and his own need of forgiveness. I'm guessing that people like the Pharisees didn't let him forget about his sinfulness. And so Jesus shows up and he says, yes, Levi, even you, even a sinner like you, even a tax collector full of sin and hated by all of Israel, even you, you, follow me, follow me. And when Jesus says that, Levi finds joy and he finds release from the forgiveness of sin that Jesus is offering and he repents and turns in faith to the living God, believing that Jesus can heal the spiritual sickness of sin in his heart. That's why he throws the party. That's why he has joy even in leaving everything else behind. And this is also why people, many people today, won't ever come to Jesus. They don't think they're sick. They don't think they're sinful. What do we need a doctor for? I'm fine. I'm healthy. I've never done anything that bad. I mean, nobody's perfect, right? But I'm not like that guy over there. I'm not like that girl over there. I don't live my life like this. I don't watch those kinds of movies. I'm doing really well. It doesn't matter whether they're religious or not. In their heart of hearts, they could be an atheist, but in their heart of hearts, they fundamentally think they're just fine. They don't need forgiveness. They don't need healing. They don't need Jesus. What about you this morning? How do you self-diagnose your heart? Do you see yourself as sinful, as sick in need of a doctor, in need of spiritual healing? Or do you think you're just fine? The reality is the Bible is clear that all of us are sick with sin and Jesus is the only doctor that can heal. He is not one who simply can heal. heal. He is willing to heal. He is willing to forgive us of all of our trespasses because he died for them on the cross. He already bore God's wrath against the judgment of your sins. So when you turn in faith and trust that he is your savior, God considers your sin the punishment for it meted out, judged on Christ who stood in your place. And Jesus has shown himself powerful and victorious by conquering the sin and death that awaits you if you don't turn. That's the only punishment that's fitting in eternity in hell. And yet Christ has already taken away and conquered over that judgment that awaits you by rising back from the dead. If you're here and, and you know I, I, I feel the weight of my sin. I know I'm not all that I should be. The only place you will find healing and salvation is in Jesus Christ. So listen to the same call that he extends today. Follow me and leave everything behind and follow him in faith.
Many of you have already believed. You've already begun to follow Jesus like Levi then. You need to learn that Jesus not only pursues sinners and calls sinners and heals sinners, but Jesus also commissions sinners. Jesus also commissions sinners. It's not just joy for himself that causes Levi to throw this party after following Jesus. It's a joy that is driven by a love for others that they might also have joy. Notice again what Levi does. He told Jesus, come over. And he made a large, made him a, a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. He follows Jesus. He puts his faith in him. And what does he do? He starts the first community group. He invites all of his sinful friends to come over. He uses wealth to, to throw this lavish party. Why? So they can meet Jesus. So they can hear the gospel of the kingdom and find the same forgiveness and joy that he himself has heard and received. Part of Jesus' call to follow him is not just to, to learn from him, not just believe him, but also to follow him in doing the kind of things that he did with the kind of people he did with. Namely, associate with sinners and share the gospel with them. Notice I didn't change the object of the title for this point. Jesus commissions who? He commissions sinners. Now, that doesn't mean that a change hasn't taken place when we trust in Christ. It doesn't mean that we aren't considered saints in Him and have His righteousness counted as ours. All that's true. But even in Christ, even as God's people, we are still sinners saved by grace. We're still beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. And if we forget that, if we forget that fact, we will never associate with sinners. Because we'll be too proud. We will see ourselves as spiritually elite, not like those other sinners. And we will not want to go to them. We will not want to share with them. We will, we will quickly forget the humility that we first had in coming to Jesus and not see ourselves once being in the same need that they were, being shown grace by God and wanting to show grace to others. We'll lose our humility before Christ. We'll become like Pharisees that are too good to show mercy to others, even though they themselves were shown mercy by God. Moreover, like every other part of Jesus' call to follow him, this commission requires sacrifice. Think about, think about the generosity that Levi displays here. Think about his willingness not only to have people in his home, but to spend large amounts of money on them. To have them come over knowing they're going to spill food. They're going to break things. They're going to stay later than he wants. And yet he does it because he loves Jesus. And he loves these sinners. Because he knows that they can find forgiveness too. Is that how we follow Jesus? With generosity and sacrifice? Some of, you may, some of you may feel like you can't be generous because you don't have that much to share. That's fine. Share what you have. Share the greatest commodity of our culture, your time. Spend time with people or partner with someone else who does have financial resources that can throw the party, but you be the host. Invite the sinners, invite your friends, be the one sharing Christ and how he's made a change in your life. Some of you want to think only as you, of your home only as a retreat or a refuge from life. I work so hard, I just want to come home and relax. Well, guess what Jesus says? When you follow me, you leave everything behind. Now understand, listen to what I'm saying here. I'm not saying you should never relax. I'm not saying you should never get away. You shouldn't ever have time for yourself. You need that. You need to be able to recharge. You need some time with your family. You need to be able to get away a couple of days and just relax and go on vacation. But that's not the problem most of us have. 
Most of us are not running around so insanely crazy from ministry, so tapped out emotionally because we're investing in sinners that we've got to find time somewhere to squeeze in a vacation. That's not where most of us live. Most of us run ourselves crazy with work and with school and with hobbies and with television and so many other things. We've got to carve out the time for ministry. We've got to carve out the time to complete our commission that Christ has called us to. Most of us never have to clean up for a bunch of sinners at our house because we never have sinners at our house. We never invite the neighbor who's an atheist or the coworker who's a drunk or the friend who's bitter and depressed. We never say, come over and let's have a meal together. Knowing, I not only don't want to be your friend and show you love, I want to tell you about Jesus. Levi sets the example for us, though, in living a life that's not about ourselves, but it's about Jesus, about following him, about making him known. And the example that he sets by way of application means thinking about how to recalibrate our life that we fulfill our calling and commission in greater and better ways. That's going to look different for all of us. Some of us are going to, going to be able to live and do and, 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 and the, the fulfilling of that commission is going to look different. Take Levi, for example. I already slipped once, if you were listening. He goes by a different name in the Bible sometimes too, Matthew. Same guy who not only followed Christ, but became an apostle and eventually wrote the first gospel that you find in the New Testament. A massive evangelistic tract to his fellow Jews, proving that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promised Messiah and the Old Testament scriptures. Here's a guy who meets Jesus and his life is never the same. From from the moment he gets away from that tax booth and follows after Jesus, he is constantly giving himself to him up until the very end. The way we live out the commission of Jesus for his disciples is going to look different for each of us, but it's going to be marked by the same kinds of things that Levi shows us here. Generosity, humility, and sacrifice. I love that scene in Return of the King where this tiny little hobbit Mary is surrounded by all of these warriors waging this battle on the fields of Pelennor. He's running around supposedly trying to help, but really just trying to stay alive. He's only there because he loves the king, the human king, the great warrior who was called for an army to stand against the demonic forces of evil they're fighting. But Mary is found crawling around in the mud, terrified at the battle that is going on, fearful suddenly when he sees the king go down. He has been felled by the enemy and now he's too afraid to do anything to help, though he desperately wants to. Suddenly, this other warrior stands in front of the king. He stands before the, the enemy, the witch king, and essentially says, if you touch him, I will smite you down. And the witch king begins to laugh and mock. Is this a joke? Do you not know who I am? I am one of the Nazgul. I will destroy you, body and soul. I will devour you until there's nothing left. No man can stand against me. The warrior then throws off his helmet, and he reveals he is not a he. The warrior is a woman, the king's own niece, Eowyn, who was snuck away from home to join the battle. And she says, no man may stay against you, but I'm no man. Do what you have to do, but if you touch him, I will smite you. It enrages the witch king, and he begins to go after her, pounding her into the ground with the ferocity of his attack, destroying her shield, breaking her arm, about to finish her off. And Mary is observing all this and suddenly he, he comes to himself. 
and he begins somewhat patronistically to think, even if a woman can join this battle and stand before this witch king trying to preserve the life of her uncle, the the king of Rohan, surely I can do something. And courage wells up within him and he runs and he jumps and he stabs the king into his leg, distracting him long enough for Eowyn to reach her sword and to drive it into the head of the witch king, destroying him and sending him back to his demonic realm. It's a wonderful scene. Why am I sharing it, though? Is this just story time? No. Because I think it's a picture of how we should respond when we think not of the mighty Eowyn, but the mighty Christ. We think about Jesus who stood between us and death while we were weak and dying from our sin. We were helpless, practically in the clutches of hell itself. And Jesus said, you can't have him. You can't have her. I've died for them. I have tasted death. I have tasted your sting and I have triumphed over you. And here we are in this world feeling like Mary, bewildered and scared in, 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 the, in the dirt and the mud of life and we're looking on what's going around around us and we think, I can't serve God. I can't fulfill this commission. I can't follow Jesus the way that, that he expects us to. And then we look up and we remember Jesus. We remember our Savior. We remember his grace towards us, his promise to be with us and to never forsake us and never leave us. And then we should take courage and say, I, I can do something. Jesus has accomplished this amazing thing for me. He has won salvation for me. He has won salvation for many. He continues to live for me. He continues to lead me as a shepherd. He continues to strengthen me by his spirit. Yes, I can do this small thing. I can, I can give up comfort and ease. I can answer the call that, that God has given through his son. And by God's grace, by the joy that is set before me in Jesus, I can help bring others to him as well. Father, that is our prayer this morning, that we would be able to not only see the example of Levi and desire to follow, but that, God, we would see Levi's Savior and desire to follow. That we would be so in love with Jesus who would look past everything that society condemned in this man and still say, you, come follow me because I have come for the sick not the righteous. I have not come for those who think that they can justify themselves before God. I have come for those who need a Savior. God, all of us need that Savior. All of us are sick with sin and we are thankful that Christ has come to be our Savior. God, we pray that 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 vision of Jesus as the mighty one who has conquered sin and death and hell, that that would inflame within us encouragement to know the same power by which he accomplished those things he has promised to us. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead now resides in us as people. Therefore, just as he calls us to follow him, he gives us the grace and the power to do it. So God, as Paul says, may we work out hard with trembling and fear the salvation you have called us to, knowing that it is you who are at work within us. God, this is our prayer. We pray it for the sake of Christ, his name and his kingdom. Amen.